Hey folks, it's Wednesday, the last week of Jesus' life, two days before he was crucified. Now, this is a day that we don't seem to have any real writing of what actually happened. If you follow the chronology as it's written, the Gospels say a lot about Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Wednesday is almost conspicuously absent. So the church has given it the, the name Spy Wednesday because of what most likely happened this day, and I'll get to more on that later. But what I want to do is give you a quick recap on where we are and take you back to last night, to Tuesday night, and tell you a story from Tuesday night and what that means for this day, Spy Wednesday. So to recap, Jesus came to his capital city, Jerusalem, to pronounce judgment on this entire cesspool of a religious political system there at the capital. This system has basically evolved into a money-making scam where people all over the country had to pay for forgiveness, and obviously it has evolved to benefit the wealthy and those already in the inner circles of the nation. He destroys it by casting judgment on it. He's not casting a spell. That's not it. Casting judgment was basically what prophets would do when they would call out scams and blow the whistle and say, God's going to cause this thing to crash because this isn't right. And when that happens, it's not unlike today when a political scam hits the surface or somebody in their entire administration or team or business gets exposed. So I'm thinking like Watergate, the Bernie Madoff scam, Enron scam or the, the Me Too revelations where some people get exposed and it's like this dagger in the heart of this fraudulent system that shows the world and now it can no longer survive in its current state. So Jesus does this in his ministry partly by healing and forgiving people which are two sides of the same coin in their world because they believed you would have been ill because God's angry at you. So he's almost like this unlicensed doctor and priest doing free work out in front of a temple system that has all of these financial and social barriers and depends on people coming through all of the red tape to get healing to keep the temple propped up. And so imagine, I know this is hard, but imagine a system where certain classes of people have to jump through like 17 different hoops and pay beyond what they could afford just to access health care, right? Uh, or a social religious system where you basically get prominence and good standing and pats on the back and benefits just as a byproduct of being wealthy and loyal. So when Jesus heals people and tells them that God forgives them, he's sort of upstaging the temple. The system is an absolute crock. So poor people, disenfranchised and marginalized people, love him. And that brings us to Tuesday night. These people throw him a party. He goes out to Bethany a couple of miles from the temple where he's staying each night with friends. We think Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were siblings out there. And they had a neighbor named Simon. Simon was a Pharisee. He was a religious official or a student of some sort. And most of the Pharisees at this point hate Jesus or is a, are opposed to Jesus. But for some reason, this prominent insider guy who would have been loyal to the temple and been a religious elite, for some reason now, he's traded jerseys. He likes Jesus and he's banding together with a Jesus movement. We get some clues in the text. It says he's giving a dinner in honor of Jesus, and his name is Simon the leper. Now, a couple of questions. How would it be possible that a man widely known as the leper in this culture could have a ton of people in his house? The only way is if he no longer has leprosy, because they considered that incurable. And he's wearing Jesus' jersey and giving a dinner in honor of Jesus. 
it's pretty safe to assume that the writers of the gospel wanted you to read between the lines as to how this guy was healed. And at this dinner, Simon's giving the dinner for Jesus, and you've got these prominent people sitting around a table, we're sure, and Mary comes in. She's a sinful woman, it says. The word is for a prostitute. She is weeping and sobbing because Jesus has welcomed her into his circles. Now, some of us think that this is the same woman that he called uh, to be a disciple, and he let her sit at his feet along with all the boys and just included her. But either way, we see that he's accepted her when she was dead to the world and a social outcast who was selling herself for sex. Now, it's funny because Mary comes in and just makes this big scene. Get this, this prostitute comes into a dinner of prominent men, basically steals the show or ruins it because she has this very, very expensive alabaster jar of nard, which would have been a, a, a precious perfume of the day. This would have been like her life savings type expensive. And she busted open and you know it has to fill the room with smell. And she pours it all over Jesus' feet and starts anointing his feet and puts her head down there. Like, you want to get awkward? She's bawling her eyes out in remorse and completely filling this room with an overwhelming smell. And then she starts drying Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, she is a mess. Now, this anointing. There were a lot of reasons why you would have anointed, and I'll get to those in a second. But first, Simon the leper, this dinner-hosting Pharisee, objects. This is apparently really difficult to shake the Pharisee out of a guy, right? He's like, Jesus, hey, like if you were a prophet, you'd know who is touching you, right? And Jesus says to him, Simon, look, who loves more? Somebody who's been forgiven less or more. Like, dude, say one person owes you 50 bucks and the other person owes you 500 bucks and you forgive both of them. Who's going to love you more? And this leper realizes that even though he likes Jesus because Jesus gave him his life back after a skin disease, this woman, she wasn't just healed of his disease. She was even farther gone. And now Jesus in his new economy says the person who lost the most will in the end be the person who loves the most. Like the worst people among us, they're going to become the best whenever we offer grace and forgiveness and include them back because they'll know how much they lost and regained. Jesus is actually like, I, I pick her. Now back to the anointing oil. There were a lot of reasons why you could have anointed with a fancy oil, uh, one like nard. And all of these are somehow captured here. Uh, anointing somehow sometimes happens whenever you set a slave free, and they are both in the process of becoming free. Uh, anointing sometimes happens whenever you transfer property, and here she is laying herself at his feet in full submission like you own me, like uh, I'm giving myself to your cause. Uh, anointing could have happened at the betrothal of a bride, which was uh, a symbol later that the Christians would use uh, between Jesus and the church. Anointing would have happened over a dead body to prepare it for burial. And Jesus actually mentions this and says that this is what she's doing. She's preparing me for burial. But the most obvious one in this story is that you anointed a priest or a king whenever you installed them and put them in charge. This was the primary image 
that would have been noticed here. This is what they used to anoint their high priest, the ruler of the temple, and the kings of the days uh, past. This was the political military leader getting anointed. This is Jesus now being called the new Messiah or the Savior or the King. See, she gets it, and she's like all in on this kingdom. Now, side note, if this were pure nard and she really poured a pound on, uh, of it on him like it says, and this were really three days before Good Friday, this stuff was so strong, it was totally plausible that you could have smelled this royal anointing oil emanating from Jesus three days later as he's being led in a street procession with a crown of thorns on his head on the way to be crucified. And if it's in her hair, she's going to be wearing this undeniable connection to this guy. She, she may be putting herself again at risk, and she smells like royalty too, right? See, isn't this beautiful? And if Jesus is a different kind of king, ushering in a different way to do politics, who's the one who gets to anoint him? It's not the high priest. It's not the chief justice of the Supreme Court. It's not the board of directors. It's a prostitute. How fitting in this new political and religious reality. These are the folks who have status in this upside-down kingdom. The ones who get forgiveness the most deeply are the ones who have prominence. The ones who have hurt the most, who have been to hell and back the most, are the ones who are the most revered in an upside-down type of society. This is why the name Christ or the name Messiah... It actually meant the anointed one, and this is why this is Jesus' name, Jesus the anointed one. This is the scene where Jesus captures that name most dramatically, and it sticks. Jesus the anointed one, anointed by a prostitute, Jesus the Christ. It's like he's capturing a lot of images and combining them into one. Now, one other angle to this is this. Jesus later says, this woman did this to prepare me for burial, which would, like I said, have been a common reason to pour oil on a body. But think about this. The only way that one person can anoint a king for leadership and prepare them for burial is if the king of your nation is a suffering servant king of love who gives himself for his people. Jesus realized that that suffering motif, if it was ever going to mean anything for the world in politics, it had to be embodied in a leader. So the outsiders like the Magi and the Canaanite woman and the children, they all call him the son of David, the king. And the lepers and the tax collectors welcome him. And finally, a prostitute anoints him. Now, when she does this, there's one more objection. Of course there is, right? <laughs> and it's none other than Judas. Now, we don't know much about Judas, but for some reason, he's the guy who doesn't get it. He, he's more, like, more than likely the guy who's just holding on a little too tightly to his life and status and fear. But Judas says, hey, wait, this is wasteful. And he actually brings up a good reason. Because, you know, he's like, Jesus, we're part of this social justice movement where we care about the poor, and you're in charge here. Don't we really care about the poor people? And, and here she is wasting all of this really expensive perfume. So Judas is this guy stuck on actions rather than the heart underneath it. Like possibly somebody who thinks they can just do enough to fix it all and to, to gain prominence. He's missing the point. He has a good point. This is like tens of thousands of dollars of perfume that really could be sold and given to the poor. So he sounds rational and he brings it up with rational language. This is rational. It's actually a good objection. 
But in the Gospel of John, we get this little snippet about where this objection came from. So uh, John, who like hung out with Judas in a small group for this whole time, he sort of whispers in his Gospel, yeah, Judas, he was really greedy, and he always wanted to carry the money bag, and he would help himself to it. And now Judas is like, wait, 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 we're wasting money. What is it about groups always asking the most shallow, money-centric person to control the finances? But this was Judas. Anyways, Jesus looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Now, this line from Jesus, it gets twisted really badly. Some people love this verse because it means we get to ignore the poor, right? And now it's okay to ignore the poor and focus on more spiritual things, but that's not what's happening. Think about what Jesus is telling Judas. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. See, I think Jesus is not stupid. The, Judas, this rule-following, money-driven, greedy guy who's focused on the externals, this guy's about to leave the party and in the next 24 hours will go sell Jesus to the establishment for 30 pieces of silver. I think Jesus is saying, Judas, no matter how much money you get, you're always going to be poor. We'll always have the poor among us. Look in the mirror. So today is Spy Wednesday. It's the day after the party when it seems like there is no story here except for what's going on undercover. And that's a crucial part of the story. With the other people, as they talk about you, think about you, react to you after you've said your piece, this day is about Jesus letting go and letting other people do their reacting without attempting to control them. Because after you've done what you came to do, after you've said your piece, after you've shown up fully in all of your naked vulnerability, and after you have laid it out all on the table and you've said that thing that you needed to say and you didn't hold back, you were honest and told the brutal truth, you revealed the ugliness of whatever it was that you were so scared of revealing, like after you have bore all for the world to see, then people are going to react. And if you're going to be true, you've got to wait in silence. And, and you can be at peace in the silence and be a non-controlling presence while they do their reacting, right? It, and you will inevitably get two reactions from the other world when you're vulnerable and lay it out there. This is Brene Brown stuff, right? Your vulnerability and honesty and truth-telling and pushing consciousness and truth forward at a dysfunctional place is going to get two reactions. You're going to get the person who clings to you as some sort of source of life, like you saved them, and you'll get the person who will use what you, re, uh, what you revealed in an attempt to destroy you. All right, this preaches, doesn't it? And what I love about this story Jesus doesn't try to control either one. He doesn't stop the woman who is almost worshiping him, and he doesn't stop the guy who's betraying him. There's always a Judas out there, isn't there? Every great story and every great life has to endure the sting of betrayal and loss post laying themselves out on the line. And betrayal, like the worst kind is from your inner circle, right? Jesus could have used this one betrayal to define him. He could have gone, oh, they don't love me. You see all the negativity? Like, I knew I was wasting my time. I'm a loser. This is worthless. He could have taken the one Twitter comment and exaggerated in his head or, or his one failure and said, you know what? It's over with now. He could have taken the one disciple who is helpless. 
You know, if you love hard enough, you'll always get betrayed. And then you'll have to decide whether people are worth taking a chance on again. You'll have to decide whether you're going to characterize everyone else by the character of the people that you weren't able to get through to. And you're going to have to decide whether you want to play the power game with your enemy or just love them anyways. And you'll have to decide whether to stay true to your own identity and your calling or your mission or whatever you want to call it, the thing that you have to do in life, or whether you're going to capitulate in the hurt of betrayal. Jesus chose non-controlling freedom and love. He chose love because that was his identity. And you'll see that in the next two days as he loved the people who hurt him the most. 